As the United States pauses to pay tribute to its honored war dead, another hero is remembered. At Arlington National Cemetery, 50,000 filed by the grave of President Kennedy on what would have been his 47th birthday. Mrs. Kennedy with John Jr. and Caroline makes a pilgrimage to her martyred husband's grave after attending a memorial mass. Nobody knew it at the time, but this visit to her husband's Arlington grave would be Jacqueline Kennedy's last official appearance in Washington. Jacqueline Lee Bouvier had arrived in the nation's capital in the fall of 1950, an anonymous college student. Now, less than 14 years later, the most famous woman in the world, she decided to flee the city and its now painful memories. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to Jackie, a podcast about my book that explores Jacqueline Kennedy's life from November 1963 to October 1968, her transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. But where would Jackie go? She could have retreated to the Kennedy compound at Hyannis, perhaps her mother's home in Newport, Rhode Island. But Jackie had spent part of her childhood in New York, always loved it, and since the assassination, began spending more time there. Her principal Secret Service agent at the time was Clint Hill. We went to New York quite a bit of the time during that first six months. And that's when she decided to move. And I was with her when she looked at the places to uh, live in New York. And she finally decided on 1045th Avenue. Now, apartment hunting in Manhattan isn't exactly easy. And when you're the most famous person in the world, it's probably even more so. Jackie and her friend Nancy Tuckerman decided to have a little fun with this. Tuckerman would pretend to be the house hunter, while Jackie, in disguise, pretended to be her nanny. She had heard from a friend about an apartment on the corner of East 85th Street and 5th Avenue that was available, 1040 5th Avenue, to be precise. Jackie checked it out, loved it immediately. The location was great, right across from Central Park, where she had played as a child. It was on Museum Mile, close to galleries, restaurants, and ritzy shopping. It was also convenient to the fancy private schools that Caroline and later John would attend. It also gave her the two things she needed most, privacy and security. Here's Jackie biographer Pamela Keogh. Well, the great thing about 1040 is, yes, there's a you know battalion of, of doormen who, who protected her. There's also a few different entrances. There's a few different doors in and out. And that was, you know, again, where she was living on N Street, unfortunately, the Harriman home and the one across the street, there, you know, there's one door in and out. And I, I've been to those places, those homes in Georgetown. You could literally stand on the you know, sidewalk. 10 feet from the front door. There wasn't a lot of wasn't a lot of privacy in Georgetown, unfortunately. I think New York City, again, as I said, she's a Bouvier and a Lee. Uh, her grandfathers were tremendous New Yorkers. New York was her town. And again, it's hard to imagine a, a first lady nowadays doing this, but she would literally just, you know, put on her jeans and a t-shirt and a pair of sneakers and just walk all over the city by herself. Which again, you know, enormous freedom. She knew she knew three different ways into the Metropolitan Museum to get out the back door. She knew Central Park by the back of her hand, Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue. New York was her town. The people protected her, and she felt safe. 
After buying the apartment, she lived in the Kennedy family suite at the Carlisle Hotel over the summer while it was being renovated. In leaving Washington behind, Jackie also left something else behind, her first lady persona. She was no longer the president's wife and no longer obligated to act like one. Barely perceptible at first, her image slowly began to change. Partly responsible for this change was a hot new artist a year older than Jackie. His name was Andy Warhol. Warhol had broken through on the New York art scene in the early 60s, his works focusing on his fascination with America's growing pop and celebrity culture. He made silk screens of Campbell soup cans and iconic figures like Marilyn Monroe. On the afternoon of President Kennedy's assassination, Warhol was in his studio. Jessica Beck, curator of the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, picks up the story. Like many Americans at the time, he um, heard about the assassination on the radio and then on newscasts of, you know, it was a traumatic moment in American history and in the American psyche. And Warhol was someone that was always deeply invested in media. So throughout his career, he's always paid attention to news headlines and the way that uh, news was sort of disseminated in America. Upon hearing that the president was dead, Warhol got to work. He started collecting these images and made somewhat of a collage almost of these images of her, both from the parade and then also the funeral. So he also did a portfolio, a flash portfolio. It's a series of prints based on the broadcast of JFK's assassination. It's called the Flash Portfolio from 1963. The images of Jackie that Warhol selected, you've seen them. Jackie smiling and gorgeous in the Dallas motorcade. Jackie, the dazed expression on her face as Lyndon Johnson is sworn in. Jackie, stoic and dignified as she marches in the funeral. The assassination put TV on the map, made it the dominant medium in the country, but the endless hours that weekend, 72 hours straight, no commercials, just hour after hour of grief, Warhol thought it was too much. His photos, just a few of them, sort of told the very same story. You could look at these pictures of Jackie before and after and understand immediately that something dreadful had happened. It was a minimalist approach that was powerful. How did Americans see Jackie differently because of what he did? For me, his images, when you see them, when you see the Jackie images and the the specific photographs that he selected of her smiling and then her both at the funeral, they're very emotional. And if you think of the photos that were taken of her smiling in the car just before the, the assassination, and then you think of her at a very public funeral, making this very public statement, I think that's where the emotional register is on those paintings, is that both of those moments of trauma were very public. And so I think that's the other level of what Warhol's using is the way in which Jackie's trauma was captured in public media. It was an early example of how Jackie transcended from mere first lady to cultural icon. You know, I just think that Warhol was also just fascinated by this idea of ascension of class and the American dream and all of these things that the Kennedys just kind of offered up a new idea of what the possibilities of what America could be at that time in the 60s. By the way, if you were around in 1964, you could have bought one of the so-called Warhol Jackies for about 
200 bucks. Today, they go for millions. When Jackie said she was done with Washington, she meant it. Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law and thus reaffirms the conception of equality for all men that began with Lincoln and the Civil War 100 years ago. On July 2nd, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law, a landmark bill that marked a turning point in American history. The legislation had been proposed a year earlier by President Kennedy. Jackie could have attended the ceremony, but said no thanks. She also said no thanks to showing up at the Democratic Convention, which that year was held in Atlantic City. She did fly in for one brief appearance at a reception, but that was it. The mere sight of the widow reduced some women to tears. And Jackie, speaking as usual in her soft, breathy voice, on the verge of cracking, thanked everyone for attending. And I want to thank all of you for coming today, all of you here who helped President Kennedy in 1960, because all of you made his shining as possible for us. So thank you. After leaving Atlantic City, she went to her mother's home in Newport and turned on the TV to watch Robert Kennedy introduce a heart-wrenching film tribute to her slain husband. It was a mistake. Flickering on the screen were images of Jack playing with Caroline and John. Jackie was devastated. She wrote an old friend the next day that she shouldn't have watched. In September, her apartment was ready. In the prior 10 months, Jackie had lived in three homes, but 1040 Fifth Avenue, this would be her principal residence for the rest of her life. Moving day, as it is for anybody, was hectic. Opening boxes, putting things away, settling in. But that very night, something happened to Jackie that could only have happened to her. She didn't know that there was another tenant in the building, a guy named John Whitehouse, some big investment executive. Here again, Pamela Keough. Jackie moves into 1040, and I'm sure she and uh, Todd Nancy Tuckerman unpacking boxes and the, you know, she's wearing jeans or whatever. And there's a knock on the door and she goes to the front door and opens it. But it was a very extremely well-dressed up couple in like black tie and evening gown. And she's standing there and, and the doorman at 12, 4, 1040 was so flustered. John Whitehouse, who was like a CEO of, you know, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, a big deal guy, investment banker, was having a dinner party at John Whitehouse's. And the doorman sent them up to Jackie's apartment by mistake. So, um, because he just associated White House with her. Exactly, White House with Jackie. It's <laughs> great, great exactly. story. For the first time since childhood, Jackie was again a New Yorker and always would be. She was only 35. On September the 15th, she walked Caroline to her first day of school, Convent of the Sacred Heart, just six blocks away. She then returned home to be with John. This was her new routine, and she was hopeful that she had finally left the pain of Washington behind. But two weeks later, a jolting reminder that she hadn't. To the White House in Washington comes the final verdict on the fateful tragedy which engulfed the nation ten months ago. The Warren Commission released its long-awaited report on the assassination of President Kennedy. Named for its head, Chief Justice Earl Warren, the commission found that Lee Harvey Oswald, acting alone and with help from no one, 
killed the president. It also concluded that Jack Ruby, a Dallas nightclub owner with ties to the mafia, also acted alone when he killed Oswald two days later. The Warren Report swamped Jackie like a tidal wave. She knew it was going to be released and planned to cancel her newspaper delivery for that whole week, but at first she forgot to, so they showed up with pictures of her dead husband on page one. Time magazine even had Oswald on its cover. Jackie then canceled her subscriptions. But if she walked by newsstands or watched the news on TV, it was unavoidable. At one point, she went to her hairdresser, and there on a table was Life magazine with pictures in blazing color from the Zapruder film itself, showing Jackie leaning over to help her stricken husband. This, this was the worst. Jackie had spent 10 months trying to get the assassination out of her mind. Now brutal pictures from the crime, even the assassin, were staring her in the face. It was terrible, she said. People often wonder what Jackie thought of the Warren report. I asked Clint Hill, her Secret Service agent, about this. She never read it. She was aware of it being released. She was aware of it being done because she was interviewed, as I was. She just liked to put it out of her mind. And not only she, I think uh, other members of the family as well. Of course, Jackie had no reason to read the Warren Report. She had lived it. And, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, all that mattered to her was the central cruel truth that her husband, the father of her two children, was gone. It won't change anything, she said, and then added, it won't bring him back. Think about Jackie's position here for a minute. She had just fled Washington in a desperate effort to forget the assassination. Now she's barely settled into her new home in Manhattan, and it all comes flooding back. Let's go back to something from episode two of this series and another Jackie biographer, Barbara Leeming. Jackie Kennedy suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, for 31 years after the assassination of Jack Kennedy. Remember, this was somebody whose husband's head was literally blown apart inches from her face, and she was left drowned in his blood and his brains. And to be able to make somebody understand what it was like to be inside her head is an extraordinary thing, and, and you can feel that when you, when you hear what she was saying, when you read what she was saying. It's a unique opportunity to understand something that we really need to understand. And what we need to understand is that Jackie never got over the assassination, never. She only learned to keep it suppressed in her mind, but some sort of stimulus, like images of the Zapruder film or of her husband's killer, could bring it back in a flash. At one point, she met with the publisher of the New York Post, Dorothy Schiff. In her quiet voice, Jackie asked her, people tell me that time will heal, but how much time? In addition to trying to leave the assassination behind, Jackie always wanted to leave politics behind too. She never really liked politics, With Jack Kennedy, she had married into it, of course, but that doesn't mean she liked it. But being a Kennedy meant that Jackie would always be involved in politics, whether she liked it or not. Brother-in-law Teddy was in the Senate, and Robert Kennedy, who had resigned as Attorney General, sought to join him, seeking a seat from New York. Jackie even allowed Robert to take John Jr. on the campaign trail at one point, an astonishing thing given her diligent efforts to protect her kids and keep them out of the spotlight. 
The voice of the people was heard in the land. 68 million citizens of the United States go to the polls to exercise their cherished franchise, and an overwhelming mandate is handed to Lyndon Baines Johnson, who becomes 36th President of the United States. The man who was thrust into office through the hand of tragedy captures an overwhelming percentage of the popular vote, more than 61 percent. Johnson's election in 1964 was never in doubt. The so-called accidental president had now been elected in his own right. Robert Kennedy also won his Senate race in New York. Johnson won 43,127,041 votes. But there was one vote he did not get, Jackie's. She let it be known that she would not, could not cast a vote for president in 1964 because that vote should have been for her husband. In our next episode... The very Cape Cod beaches he loved reflect the first melancholy day of remembrance. The day Jackie had been dreading, that first anniversary of Dallas. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll check out my new book on Jackie between her two marriages. It's called Jackie, Her Transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. Available everywhere, and if you're enjoying this show, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other history fans find it. Special thanks this week to Joan Herman, host of the radio show Conversations with Joan, for the segment with Barbara Leeming. Jackie is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. My special thanks to producer Hannah Ray Leach, sound designer and engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, and executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Show theme music by Josh Perlman Hall. Visit evergreenpodcasts.com for a transcript and more info on the show. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.